Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events behind the scenes footage and so much more plus you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon it's in you please be in it visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now that's podcast with an s thanks from kqed Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. What if, instead of hiding our rejection letters, we shared them with others and they shared theirs with us? What if we tallied all the times we were turned down for jobs or scholarships and celebrated them with parties like we do other milestones? That's what a group of graduate students at UC Irvine did. Two great benefit, apparently. And joining me now is Barbara Sarneka, Professor of Cognitive Sciences and Associate Dean of Graduate Studies and Research for Social Sciences at UC Irvine. Welcome to Forum, Dr. Sarneka. Hi, thank you for having me. Also with us is Raina Cohen, producer and editor at NPR, who recently wrote a piece about what UC Irvine did for The Atlantic titled, A Toast to All the Rejects. <laughs> Raina Cohen, thanks so much for being with us as well. Very happy to talk about rejection. <laughs> so Barbara Starnecka, I will start with you. You and a group of graduate students did what I just described in this introduction, began sharing and logging your rejections as a group. First, tell us how this came to be. Well, I, um, I teach a lot of doctoral students and <clears throat> I wanted them to focus. We, we get a lot of rejections in academia. We send a lot of papers that don't get you know, published right away. We apply for a lot of grants that we don't get. Uh, students apply for jobs that they don't get. And my concern as an advisor was just a way to incentivize that they keep trying, right? Because, mm. because it's very tempting when you're writing something like a job application or a grant proposal or you're, you know, submitting something for a conference or a fellowship, it's hard. It's hard work. It's confusing. It's discouraging. And you start thinking, well, I'm probably not going to get this anyway. So why am I doing all this work for something that I probably won't get anything back from? And then you just want to quit, right? <laughs> so the, the challenge for advisors like me is getting our students to just apply for lots of things, to keep trying, to keep submitting, keep applying. And so we came up with this idea of uh, having a goal of getting a certain number of rejections so that you feel like, well, I'll apply for this. And if I don't get it, at least it's another line on the rejection collection. So we, we um, a couple of my graduate students at the time suggested like, let's do this together. Let's have a shared rejection collection for the lab. And so we started doing it. We decided when we got to hundred rejections, we'd have a party. And so that's what we do. So when you collect them, it's like on a, a Google Doc, a spreadsheet kind of thing? Yeah, it's on a Google spreadsheet. We have about 500 of them now. We've been doing it for a few years. <laughs> 500 of them at this point. And when you say party, like it's a literal party. You get together or yeah. as as best you can in, in pandemic yeah. times, yeah, right? Yeah, we had the first one at my house and then we've had them at uh, parks during the pandemic. So they were outdoors. And yeah, I, I buy cake and champagne and pizza <laughs> for everybody. And we all... Um, 
you know, get together and make toasts. We toast to uh, ourselves and to the the reviewers who rejected us and to the people who got the stuff that we didn't get. Uh, and it's very pleasant. So Raina, Bar- yeah, oh, go I was ahead. just going to say, I think Barbara's downplaying just how much effort she puts into these parties. Um, I got to see some of the invitations and uh, some of the themes that she's, she's uh, had for the parties. I know that one party took place in October and they had the theme of Rejectoberfest. And I saw a photo of a cake that says rejected with an exclamation mark. So these these are real deal parties, sometimes with costumes. Um, and, you know, I just just don't want uh, Barbara not to, uh, you know, get, to share how much she has actually put into to these uh, festivities. That's awesome. So, Raina, why did the rituals of parties and collecting rejections and really sharing them openly resonate with you? How have past rejections affected you? I, I think I'm like a lot of people where I get a rejection and it feels like everybody else in the world is getting things and I'm not. Um, and I, I had to sort of a private way of, of managing rejections for a long time. I kept a, a running document um, that I titled Valiant Efforts, where I would just list the things that I wasn't getting. And it was a way of tracking and, and feeling like there's actually just some kind of mechanical thing I can do when I got the bad, got bad news. Um, and what, you know, appealed to me, uh, with this system and and really got me to write about it is that a friend of mine who, um, is also an academic, uh, Rosanna Summers had been in a rejection collection group because, um, Barbara's system has spread across, um, you know, different, just different parts of, of academia. And she, the group she was in had gotten a little bit large. So she wanted to make a smaller one where she would really know everybody and feel invested and, once I became part of that group, which we started just about a year ago, it was clear to me how quickly it affected my my feelings and, and sort of associations with rejection. Um, you know, like like Barbara, uh, Rosanna is a very you know really cheers us on. Um, it makes it makes uh, the idea of a rejection collection fun. And it um, I was just talking to a friend who who just joined our group, and and she was like, it's making me almost competitive about really wanting to have more rejections and to contribute <laughs> and to feel like we're, you know, that I'm, I'm pulling my weight and getting us to the party. Um, and that is really the mentality that a lot of us have. And I was, um, you know, I just found it kind of remarkable how much it shifted, even from this previous system that I had that, that helped somewhat. Yeah. Well, Barbara Sonneka, I'm also so curious about how you handled rejection maybe before you discovered this, this new way <laughs> of dealing with them. I mean, I, I handled it like everybody else. I felt terrible about it. You know, I, I would, um, I was telling Raina, I put the, I would get um, a rejection and I would back when they were paper, I don't, I don't think they were paper. I think I would print it. I don't think they were ever paper, but even when I started, you know, graduate school, like in the nineties, there were, there was email, but I would put the email. I couldn't look at it. You know, I would like print it out and stick it in my desk drawer and not look at it for two weeks. Or I would just hide it in my email and not read it because it was too painful. And so I would have to like, let it, let it mellow for a while and then I would be able to look at it. And my initial response was always shame. You know, I would send off a paper and feel like it was great. And then I would get, it would be, they're virtually never accepted the first time. So you would get, um, it would get rejected or I'd get a, you know, revise and resubmit, or sometimes what we call a reject and resubmit, which is when they basically say, this is awful. We're not promising to, you know, we'll look at it again. If you really want to revise it, we'll look at it, but we probably still won't publish oh, it. Wow. It's pretty bad. <laughs> um, and I would, I would read the feedback from the reviewers and think, 
oh my God, this is, they're right. It's terrible. This, this is, I'm so embarrassed that I sent this and that anybody could look Oh, how could I have thought that this was publishable? Oh, it's terrible. And I would just think, I'm not going to revise it. It's not worth it. And then a couple of weeks later, I'd think, well, I mean, I suppose I could revise it and whatever. I don't care. And then by the time I got through revising it and resubmitting it, I would think it was great again. <laughs> and I would send it off. And then the whole thing would start over. Mm. Um, so yeah. it was hard and it was emotionally wrenching. And it was hard, especially to to apply for things like grants where like, at least with the paper, you think eventually it's going to get published somewhere. Like you revise it enough times and resubmit it enough times, it's probably going to get published. But a grant that, you know, sometimes it's like 10% of them get funded. So you think there's a 90% chance I get nothing from this. Why yes. am I doing this? Right. And then as in academia, you are doing this a lot. So you're kind of going through this process over and over and over again, which can really weigh you down. I, I want to invite our listeners to join the conversation. I'm really curious, listeners, how you handle rejection or if you've created some kind of a ritual to get you through it. As you're listening to, to these strategies that Barbara Sarneka and Raina are talking about, um, are you hearing them being useful in other parts of your life? You can join the conversation by calling 866-733-6786. And when I say other parts of your life, I mean maybe outside professional uh, rejections. Again, that number 866-733-6786. You can email us forum at kqed.org, or you can post your answers on Twitter, Facebook, our Instagram, we're at KQED Forum. Raina, as we're talking a little bit about the impact of projections, I'm reminded by, um, by your conversation that you wrote about in your piece with a psychologist, talking about why rejections can be so bruising. Can you share with us what he told you? Yeah, so he, you know, had been studying rejection for decades and found a number of things. One was just that uh, rejection, even really tiny rejections that he would test in the lab would make the people feel awful. So it doesn't really take much for us to, to feel some kind of pain. And uh, that rejection really had really hurts our self-esteem, which I think is intuitive to, to a lot of us, that it makes us feel like we are not quite as capable. And there's also a whole body of research on how Social rejection, sort of the pain caused by uh, by rejection in social interactions, really is similar to physical pain. Um, that mm -hmm. it sets off the same uh, parts of the brain. That there there was an interesting study that was cited quite a bit from 2010, finding that if people were given acetaminophen um, as opposed to a placebo, that their experiences of social pain were were lessened, um, and also the same parts of their brain that had been kind of previously set off. Um, with uh, with physical pain were were, were diminished um, when they they had you know basically um, Tylenol. So so social pain uh, that causes that's caused by rejection is really no joke. I think is the um, the summary, and we lose um, a sense of of kind of how how good we feel about ourselves and how much we belong um, when we get these no's. Well, this listener writes on Instagram, this show topic put an immediate smile upon my face, having lived a fairly interesting life. I was struck by lightning, experienced many motorcycle wrecks, was diagnosed with MS and lived through half a dozen more situations most wouldn't want to experience. I've found there's opportunity in everything. Uh, Barbara Sarnaka, what effect has it had 
on your graduate students, some of the things that we may not have touched on yet, just in terms of having this ability to put rejections out there on a spreadsheet and log them and celebrate them when you reach a certain number. What have you heard from them in terms of the impact? Well, my students really seem to love it. They've all, um, we've been doing this for a number of years. So the rejection collection keeps growing. Everybody who hears about it says, can I join? <laughs> and so we end up with dozens of people. And as Raina said, the, the groups get bigger and bigger and then they feel too big and people you know, break off and start their own groups. Um, most of my students, I think all of my students who were in the lab at the time when we were developing this have gone on to create their own mentoring groups and create their own men, uh, rejection collections and their um, academics now with their own labs or they're working in industry. Uh, so anecdotally, people seem to love it. They seem very encouraged by it and it brings a lot of joy and comfort and happiness to an otherwise like difficult, painful situation. I can't tell you, I mean, as a behavioral scientist, I can't pretend that I have um, good randomized controlled uh, data to show <laughs> that effect. Uh, the, the ends are very small, but yeah, everybody, I like it. Everybody seems to like it. We're definitely continuing to do it. Yeah. Let me go to caller Kenneth in Benicia. Hi, Kenneth. Hey, how are you doing this morning? Great. So, um, when I'm listening to this, I think it's great. I've dealt with this a lot the last two years and on a spiritual level uh, or another way, depending on if you believe or God or not, Rejection is his way of protecting you. And if you don't believe in God, it's also uh, just something else is going to come. Something better is coming. And on a deeper level, when you really look at your rejection, you'll understand, oh, that's why that happened. And you move on and something else better comes along. And in the end, it was actually great for the rejection. Kenneth, thanks for sharing that. And um, yeah, and for being so honest about it, what I'm hearing, Raina, is something that really emanates in your piece, which is one of the strengths of this, is that it's really about reframing what rejection is or what failure is. Yeah, um, you know, absolutely. It changes it from something that causes shame in the way that Barbara described her her initial experiences of it to being a mark of progress that you that there's an accomplishment. Um, in, in working on the thing that ended up getting rejected, uh, you could choose not to pitch the piece or write the application or apply for the job. Um, and then you might not get kind of the, you know, I, I'm uh, sad to inform you kind of letter that's rejecting you. But there, there's work involved in that there. It's even if you don't get anywhere in terms of the, the, the win that you wanted, you're maybe figuring something out in the process. Um, you know, I certainly have had the experience of working on applications where just being able to, just answering the questions and having the prompts in front of me helps me learn something about what, my writing when I'm often, often applying to, um, to work on, on something related to my writing. So it's, uh, it's progress rather than something that should cause shame. Yeah, let me go to Jennifer next in San Francisco. Hi, Jennifer. Hi, I just want to call and say I'm so grateful for this. I'm about to jump out of my car and go to work and just heard you mention that kind of life cycle of, um, of experience where you have that rejection and then you feel like you have a moment where you're ready again to, to try again. But I take care of a large public garden in San Francisco that sees about 2 million visitors a year. And when I first started a decade ago, 
I was mortified when they asked me to do it and when I interviewed for the job because I thought, like, it's so, I'm a private person, <clears throat> just feel so vulnerable putting myself out there mm. in such a public way, gardening. Um, and so for five years, I remember winter would come and I would prune, you know, a thousand hydrangeas and all of my roses back. And I would just feel this horrible feeling of vulnerability. Like the garden doesn't look like what it is. It doesn't, it, what if it doesn't manifest in the spring? You know, <clears throat> I felt so like, it just felt like really putting myself out there in my creative way yeah. and how will people view it? And every spring, sure enough, like it just, it comes back, you know, or um, part of the garden will get hit by a car and I feel like, oh my God, it looks so horrible. But I'm also an artist and um, people always ask me like, what do you do? Or if I say garden, you know, I used to say gardener <clears throat> and I don't address the artist piece because I never felt like good enough, you know, like it's not out there and it hasn't received this attention. And, um, and now I just kind of embrace it. And I know that that cycle comes and goes, but doing the work that I do by myself in this kind of isolated way, it, I just, I'm grateful to hear you share about that feeling of rejection and just your process and working through it. Well, Jennifer, thank you for sharing your vulnerability with us and also such beautiful imagery to think about it uh, in terms of the life cycle of flowers too. Um, love that. Barbara Sarnek, I don't know if you have a reaction as well to what Jennifer is describing here. Since you do yeah, go through this process over and over. It's gorgeous. I mean, we use, I use a lot of gardening metaphors. <laughs> we talk a lot about, um, we have a saying, it's a garden, not a mine, <laughs> because there are a lot of people in science who treat ideas like, um, jewels that you dig up from the ground, you know, like, like there are a limited number of them and you have to guard them and somebody's going to steal your ideas and you have to hoard your ideas. <laughs> and we like yeah, to say, right. no, no, no ideas, you know, knowledge. It's not like jewels that you have to dig up and hoard and be afraid somebody's going to steal it from you. It's like tomatoes growing on tomato plants, right? You do your work, you water the garden, you work in the garden every day. You don't see the, you don't see the results right away. It takes time, but then Every tomato that grows, you know, every product, every study you finish, every finding that you have has the seeds of many, many more ideas and projects in it. And so there's no shortage, you know, like if the gardener next door to you is gardening, you can help them and they can help you and we can all produce more good science. You know, you don't, you don't have to be afraid that if somebody else is successful, you're going to be unsuccessful as a result, right? It's not a, like a limited quantity of success. <laughs> mm, love that. This listener tweets, rejection is merely a change in the path of direction. It never feels that way at the moment, but if you keep trying, it always leads to something better. Again, getting at some of that reframing of this and, uh, and Nathan writes, my colleague at California College of the Arts, the sculptor and ceramicist Arthur Gonzalez, published a book of drawings that he made on top of 30 years of rejection letters, published by John Natsulas Press from Davis. And uh, Gabe writes, when I get rejections, I reflect on whether I really wanted it or not. If it hurts, I am motivated to try harder. But oftentimes I'm relieved that I didn't get something, as it can be a burden that I haven't fully thought through before applying. We're toasting all the rejects and rejections today on Forum, and we'll have more of those after the break. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim.
Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about rejection and how much we often hate to talk about rejection, but being open about them and celebrating them, literally like with parties, might be the very thing that makes us feel better. We're talking with Raina Cohen, producer and editor at NPR, who recently wrote a story for The Atlantic titled A Toast to All the Rejects, and also Barbara Sarneka, a professor of cognitive sciences and associate dean of graduate studies and research for social sciences at UC Irvine, also author of the writing workshop, Write More, Write Better, Be Happier in Academia, which actually includes a discussion of the work that she's done with graduate students and the way that they log and celebrate uh, their rejections. And you can join the conversation, listeners, by calling 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. Email us, forum at kqed.org. Post your thoughts on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram about how you handle rejection or what your questions are about rejection for our guests. Guests. If you yourself have created a special way of getting through rejections, or if you're hearing these strategies of sharing them openly and celebrating them as being useful in other parts of your life. Let me go to caller Sybil in Berkeley. Hi, Sybil. Hi, um, this is, can you hear me? I can now, yeah. Oh, awesome. Okay, uh, I just wanted to tell a little story. A long time ago, I was a um, graduate student in a neuroscience lab, and there was this postdoc who was applying for academic positions, and he had a wall of rejections where he put all the rejection letters for all of those positions. And I remember at the time thinking, that's so brave, right? And he was such an example to us. Like, I really learned this from him. And this was a really long time ago. And I've had lots of job applications since then. But I keep that in mind that it's about progress, it's about moving forward. Every time you get a rejection, you're closer to the acceptance and you're closer to the job you want. So I look this guy up to see where he is now. And he's a professor at UC Irvine. His name is Todd Holmes. I don't know. You might even know him. Oh, well, Sybil, thanks for the story. And Barbara, do you know him? I do not. I should have. I should look them up. We have a lot of neuroscience. We have neuroscience spread across a number of departments, not just mine here. So I will look yeah. them up. Yeah, but cool. Thanks for sharing that, Sybil. Uh, Reina, I think you wrote about another person who was also really open about all of his rejections and posted them. But you make a distinction between one person sharing all of their rejections and a whole collective or a whole group of people sharing them together and those having distinct differences. Can you talk about how you see those things as different? Yeah, um, you know, one, one piece of uh, kind of feedback or response that I get to from people when I tell them about the rejection collection is that they'll say, oh, this is like a CV of failures, which is uh, essentially what it sounds like instead of having a CV that lists all of your accomplishments, it lists all the things that you didn't get. Um, and there was a, a professor then at Princeton who published his CV of failures. Um, there have been people who had done it prior, but his really kind of caught wind on the internet. And um, people sort of in, enjoyed that idea um, and getting to see what this very accomplished person 
actually did not get and how those things are invisible. And I think making rejection visible um, and you know, not just sort of looking uh, at a long list of, of your own um, is something that the CBA failures and the rejection collection has in common. Um, but those are just sort of one, one-off examples here and there. What, what I experience when I open up the rejection collection and I am adding my own entries that I see the entries of my friends, often ones that are new since I last opened it. And these are people who are fairly close to me. And I know when they get their paper published in nature or, you know, a fancy op-ed or get their poem published, but I don't often hear about all of the things that they aren't getting. And the fact that I don't know that even about my close friends is an indication to me of how much other people who are getting rejected, um, who, you know, that I, I'm just not privy to how common that is. And it really mm-hmm. undo, undoes the distorted thinking that I think all of us have, because we have no clue how much other people are getting rejected, as long as it's something that we feel like we shouldn't share because people might think that we're we're not very good and that we don't deserve um, to to get the kinds of accolades that we're we're seeking. Yes, if we only hear about the successes, typically, then our rejections seem rare. I think even you, Barbara Seneca, talked about how you feel like the distortion can contribute to imposter syndrome. What do you mean? Well, there's this thing called imposter syndrome, right? That's usually, it's been talked about since like the 1970s, typically about women. So women are, uh, it is attributed to women. So, but the way, if you talk, if you call something a syndrome, right? It sounds like there's some error in thinking and psychologists have talked about it. Like uh, these women who are very successful and capable have this sense that they are imposters and that's an error because they're not imposters. Obviously they're highly qualified and they're as qualified as everybody else. And so feeling like an imposter is a mistake. And so we're going to call it imposter syndrome. But what I have pointed out is that let's imagine a scenario where everybody gets 90% rejections, right? So all of us submit hundred things a year and we get 10 acceptances and 90 rejections, but we only talk about the acceptances. That means personally, what you'll experience is 90% rejection, but what you'll hear about from other people is hundred percent success. So the evidence you have is that everybody else succeeds all the time and that you fail 90% of the time. So you're going to, of course, you're going to think that you're doing worse than everybody else. That's not that's not a distortion of the evidence you're getting. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Well, Anthony writes, your guest's initial description of a complex and confusing grant application process, putting in a lot of work while already feeling like you probably won't get the result you want, feels to me exactly like my experience with dating. I literally couldn't have described it better. I love the idea of intentionally collecting and celebrating rejections in this space as well, and I'm going to give it a try. I wonder if your guests have any comments or experience with rejection in the social and romantic areas and how to make sure you do this in a helpful way, making sure it's not counterproductive. Raina Cohn, do you have any thoughts on this or have you even talked about this with friends? I haven't done anything like this myself in the social space, but I do think that I've had a little bit of a knockoff effect of um, the rejection collection on just being sort of bolder in reaching out to people. And if they aren't, you know, aren't interested in being friends with me or, you know, um, or don't respond to an, an e- a cold email, then I can think sort of, n- no, uh, I-, I tried and I haven't really lost anything. I'm, I'm back where I started not being connected to this person. Uh, what this, it reminds me of um, a Planet Money episode from years ago where what, there, somebody made a, a spreadsheet of 
uh, of all of the dates that she went on and she had kind of a shorthand for, um, you know, sort of explaining how the date was. And I think one of them turned into a very long-term relationship, but she had this kind of mentality. I don't know if she would talk about it in terms of rejection, but something similar in that it's a numbers game. And I think that that's something that Barbara, you know, underscored to me when we talked that there are lots of reasons you get rejected from things, um, professionally and personally too, that are not always um, about kind of how good you are. And it could be about all sorts of things like timing and just putting yourself out there and playing a numbers game makes it more likely that that something will will stick um, rather than just being, you know, having your, your sales trimmed by fear of rejection. Ah, so it makes you, it makes you braver. Uh, another arena, one of our producers was talking about when they heard about this this show that they would love like a, a parenting spreadsheet where everybody puts their parenting fails uh, so that they too can also feel like you know, they are in good company because a lot of times we keep those things quiet as well. And, and so, you know, sort of that social aspect of engaging with the moments of failure and, and being as open about them as possible and building connection that way. Let me go to caller Deborah in Walnut Creek. Hi, Deborah. Hi there. Um, I just retired as a professor um, after 18 years. And one of the reasons I retired early is be not because of my rejections, which I also followed that path of letting them sit, you know, letting responses to papers sit for a few days before I actually looked at them. I love that. And I love what you're talking about. But it was because it was so hard to manage my students and their expectations. And especially true, see, after I got tenure, I thought, oh, I'll be fine. But, you know, the students, their career is still dependent um, often on success. And they have limited amounts of funding and uh, you know, limited time. And this was just terribly stressful for me. Mm. Um, I wanted to say another thing, which is I found myself writing grant proposals. Like I found that the grant proposals that I got were not the most important work, but then the students were funded to work on that. So this was enormously discouraging over time. So, Last, let me just say that I'm, I'm imp really impressed by what you're doing. But when I hear it, I think, oh, the energy this must take. Mm. And d do you find that it takes a lot of energy or is it so much a habit that you just I don't know, don't even feel it at this point. Yeah. Well, Deborah, I really feel you in your comment. Barbara Sarneka, do you have any thoughts for Deborah? Uh, about whether it takes a lot of energy. I mean, I, I think this is familiar. What Deborah's talking about is familiar to all of us who advise uh, graduate students is that we, we really care about our students. We want to see them be successful. There's a lot of failure and it's a long road and we're always, you know, trying to figure out how to support them. And for me, this is, um, the way that we've developed to create a community that's supportive and, and so I, I don't know if it takes a lot of energy. It, it feels to me um, energizing, like renewing, like it makes me happy too. It cheers me up also. It gives me a sense of um, happiness and pride and joy that, that to see my students 
handling rejection, to see them continuing to make efforts. And I know, so for example, when we instituted the rejection collection, we uh, we had this saying that, that arose like, well, it's one more line on the rejection collection, right? People would try to apply for, they'd consider applying for things and they'd say, well, I don't know. I mean, at least if I don't get it, it's one more line on the rejection collection, meaning it's one step closer to us having a party. And I can think of at least two examples where students applied for things that they had no expectation of getting. So one, my student, Ashley Thomas, applied for a postdoc in Germany where that required you to speak German, and she doesn't speak German. <laughs> and she applied for it anyway and said, well, it's one, one more line on the rejection collection. And they contacted her and said, um, well, how good is your German? And on a scale of one to 10, how good is your German? And she wrote 0.5. <laughs> And they wrote back and said, do you mean 50%? And she said, no, that was a joke. I don't speak German. And they said, uh, well, we're going to see about getting the, the job reclassified to, to eliminate German language as a requirement because we really love your application and we love your work and we'd really like to hire you. Oh. I mean, and she would not have applied at all because if it weren't for the rejection collection. Yeah. Um, so you know, as an advisor, that stuff makes me really happy. <laughs> I'm really happy to see my students not losing heart and continuing to um, apply for things. Another student um, before the pandemic, she was applying for summer internships. Uh, this is Emily uh, Sumner, who's at Toyota in their AI department now. But she, when she was a PhD student with me, she was applying for internships and she applied for one that was a remote position, which I don't know if you can remember, but before the pandemic, there weren't a lot of remote working positions or she didn't at least know what this even meant. She wasn't sure exactly what that would be, but she applied because one more line on the rejection collection. And um, she got this internship, which turned out to be a great job and a job that she kept for a couple of years. And um, yeah, just when you, when you change your frame of mind so that you're actively happily applying for things and not worrying about the, you know, what if you don't get it? It's like, that's fine. I don't care if I don't get it or not. I'm just going to apply for everything. Lots more good things happen. And as an advisor, that's great for me. That makes me really happy. <laughs> My students have been much more successful and, and that's wonderful. We're talking with Barbara Sarnek, a professor of cognitive sciences and associate dean of graduate studies and research for social sciences at UC Irvine. Raina Cohen is with us, a producer and editor at NPR. Raina's piece for The Atlantic is a toast to all the rejects. And you're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. It also sounds like, Barbara Sarneka, that the structure that you put on it, this consistent structure, also makes it something that may, uh, th th not necessarily easy, but just makes it more routine to be able to do after a rejection, like being able to, to support somebody, not just collect, but also support with celebrations like parties, or maybe it can be something much simpler than that. Yeah, I mean, as advisors, we have an enormous amount of power in the sense that um, doctoral students really want to please their advisors. <laughs> so it's as an advisor, you can change the incentive structure very easily. All you have to do is say to your students, I want you to get a lot of rejections. Like, I don't care if you get uh, a lot of fellowships and publications and whatnot, what I want you to focus on is trying. I want you to apply for a, a lot of things. And I'll be proud of you if you try, right? I'll be proud of you if we get 100 rejections, I'll throw a party for you. That That's, you can do that easily as an advisor. You can switch the incentive structures around because students want to do whatever their advisor wants them to do. Right? So, yeah. Let me go yeah. to caller Elizabeth. Hi, Elizabeth in Palo Alto. Hello. 
Um, I wanted to tell about uh, getting the best job in the United States for me after being rejected for it twice. I was faculty at San Francisco State, and I had tenure at Cal Poly Pomona, but I really wanted to be in the Bay Area. And when I read that job description the third time, I thought, am I going to be rejected three times? And I thought, I'll always be sorry if I don't try. I'll always be sorry. I could feel the sorrow of of not trying. I tried. I got the job. I got tenure twice and lived uh, happily ever after. <laughs> and I told my students, I applied for this job three times before I got it. And so to encourage them not to give up also. Well, thanks for sharing that, Elizabeth. And uh, Audrey writes, I'm a recently retired high school English teacher from San Jose, and I used to host a sigh and cry day after my seniors received their college acceptance or rejection letters each spring. They brought the letters in and posted them to a wall in the classroom. I found that the honesty that students were able to share in their projections, especially, were very helpful to them moving forward. Tony writes, I love the idea of getting as many rejections as possible. As a solo musician looking for gigs, I learned that getting one was a numbers game and that rejection was often a matter of simply not fitting the slot the other was looking to fill. You have to keep trying to find the right slot. One success can wipe out a whole lot of rejection. That kind of underscores the earlier point about this not really being based on merit or worth um, a lot of times as well. And Patty writes, The Rejection Collection is also the title of a hilarious book by established New Yorker cartoonists. The cartoons are those that the magazine rejected. Ah, are you familiar with that, uh, Barbara Sarnica? No, that's great. I hadn't heard of it. <laughs> Let me see if I can squeeze Nancy from Redwood City in really fast. Hi, Nancy. You had a quick comment? Yes. I think that the best thing about what you're doing is acknowledging the incredible effort that goes in to writing a book or a paper. And I had one rejected five years ago, quite discouraging, until I found somebody who read it anyway because he was a friend and gave me all kinds of positive feedback saying, this is wonderful. you got to keep going. And he's become one of my editors, and it looks like I'm going to be able to continue <laughs> well, Nancy, thanks for sharing that. And my thanks to uh, Barbara Sarneka of UC Irvine for coming on and sharing the inspiration and how her rejection collection has worked out. Thank you, Dr. Sarneka. Thank you. Also, Raina Cohen, thanks so much for coming on as well. And congrats on your piece in the Atlantic, a toast to all the rejects that inspired our segment. Well, thanks for letting me talk a little bit about it. And thanks listeners for sharing your stories as well. This segment was produced by Ariana Prail. Forum is also produced by Judy Campbell, Blanca Torres, and Grace One. Caroline Smith is our engagement producer. Susan Britton is the lead producer for the 10 o'clock hour. Our engineers are Danny Bringer, Katie McMurrin. Our interns are Jennifer Ng and Paul C. Kelly Campos. Our executive editor is Ethan Tobin-Lindsay. And our chief content officer is Holly Kernan. I'm Mina Kim. Have a great weekend. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising-Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. 
Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Soul to Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Soul to Story are available now.